I felt personally that we were in some war. That's how it felt. I was frontline at work in the care home. We never stayed home. And then even more so at church. The push really for me was to make sure that that everyone stayed safe because I was just, I was desperately afraid for everyone. I was desperately afraid for not just my own family, but the whole congregation, which I knew they were the most vulnerable and we were only as strong as our weakest. Welcome to Rebel Women. I'm Esther Freeman. I've left one of my favourite lockdown stories until last, the story of Avril Putin-Watan. She illustrates the huge impact community volunteers can have. By reaching out to the most marginalised, she not only saved lives, but stopped the spread of COVID-19. Avril's parents were born in the Philippines, part of an indigenous community called the Igorot. They came to Britain in the 70s as part of a wave of migration that helped staff the NHS. Avril was born at the Salvation Army's Mother's Hospital in Hackney in 1978. The family later moved to Waltham Forest, which is where Avril grew up and still lives today. proud of her heritage, which is known for rice farming and a distinct culture of music and dance. The Igorot are also known for kinship, social ties and heralding peace pacts between regional tribes. Avril's heritage inspires her community work, including volunteering as warden at St Barnabas Church in Walthamstow. So our congregation is... Um it's a mixed congregation. We're a very diverse congregation. We are in the heart of Waltham Forest, so we have people from that are predominantly white English, Afro-Caribbean from the Caribbean, people that have come through Windrush, and then we have the recent wave of migration would have been the Filipinos who came 50 years ago, like my parents' generation, came in the 70s to serve in the NHS. We have a significant number of people from the Philippines, particularly the north of the Philippines, who Unlike the south of the Philippines, where they're mainly Roman Catholic, in the north of the Philippines, which saw a lot of uh, American influence through the missionaries of the Americans who came to the north of the Philippines, that's why there's a strong Anglican focus in the north of the Philippines. So when my parents and other families from the north of the Philippines came to the UK, particularly Walthamstone settled here 50 years ago, St Barnabas Church was the Anglican church that welcomed them was a very welcoming and open church at the time. It had different people from all over the world practicing their faith here. As warden, Avril was responsible for the day-to-day running of the church. She oversees everything from paying bills to buying toilet paper. But Avril goes beyond administration duties. 
I see a role for myself in not only having ministry here in the church to our church members, but also having a ministry outside of the church. So collaborating with all our community partners, whether it be in the mosque, whether it be in the council, other churches, that's the, the community organising work that I, I'm really heavily involved with. That I, I don't see it as separate from the faith. As a Christian, my ethos is to follow Christ, which is to love and to serve. So the service not just in church, but outside in the community is really strong for me. And I see the community organising work as a method of doing that service. The church has a very strong history in, in organising, community organising. Our previous priests have been very active in the community and having our congregation and our members you know, reach out to the community. The community use this, um, the church as well as a community space. So we see it as a two-way kind of relationship and I see my role really as making sure that that we continue to do that in, in a positive and collaborative way. But in March 2020, when lockdown struck, Avril was feeling anything but positive. incredibly despondent actually at the time cast our minds back we were in the depths of a pandemic that none of us had any idea how we were going to control this thing nobody had a clue where we were going to be the only hope that we had was the vaccine at that time I felt desperately sad and desperately afraid it didn't matter if we could vaccinate everyone that was in that NHS list what about those people that weren't able to be able to be vaccinated, that wanted to be vaccinated. Avril knew that getting the vaccine was going to be difficult for many members of their congregation because they weren't registered with the NHS. Very early on in the pandemic, if you can recall, in order to have the vaccine, once you were eligible, you needed to book through the NHS website using an NHS number. As a care home manager myself, I knew that when I was booking my own staff and my residents, because we were considered key workers and my residents vulnerable, I was going in and I knew that you know the NHS numbers were being asked. They really were being asked of people to make these bookings for the vaccine. And I knew instantly at that time that there were people in our congregation, our members of our church, that were key workers, were working, living nannies, living 24-hour carers, caring for those with dementia, these were people who I knew didn't have NHS numbers because they'd never registered with the GP. Some of these people had been living in the UK some 10, 15, 20 years, rather invisible. They don't have their immigration status. They've been trying to settle their status, regularise their status. But because the immigration laws of this country have been so challenging, it's been incredibly difficult and expensive for them to have overcome that. So a lot of these people have fallen out of immigration status, so they're considered undocumented. They're still in the process trying to, to regularise status. So many of them hadn't, for many years, registered with a GP out of fear that their contact details would be shared with the Home Office. So we'd seen lots of people in our congregations actually deported over the years, being found in, in homes where they were sofa surfing or living. It was a real fear for the community that 
for some of them that they didn't want to go forward to the GPs and register themselves because they, they were afraid they'd be reported to the Home Office. So with that backdrop, knowing that there were a number of people in our congregations who hadn't ever registered with GPs out of fear, I knew there were going to be people in our congregations that would never have access to the NHS number because they'd never registered with a GP. And these were people that were frontline workers, key workers, still working, living in homes with the elderly, taking care of children, and just thinking to myself, God, how are these people ever going to get access to the vaccine? On the 2nd of December 2020, the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine was approved for use in the UK, becoming the first to be authorised anywhere in the world. Queues formed around the block as everything from pharmacies to libraries turned into vaccination clinics. Yet despite this huge demand, take-up from one community remained low. It made me incredibly angry as well to hear that there were statistics about the BAME community not coming forward for the vaccine. When I knew that there were 30, 50 people in my church that were desperate to take the vaccine and there was nowhere for us to get them the vaccine. It was a desperate situation. We were, I felt incredibly desperate, despondent, uh, frustrated, everything all at once. I work for the NHS. I mean, I work as a care home manager, so I support the NHS and I just... There was such a huge barrier there that I couldn't overcome. At the time when we knew that the vaccine was coming out, we knew that it was eligible, key workers, people that were working on the front line, and I knew these people in the church were all frontline workers. They were working, living in homes, caring for people. So that was essentially their work. And they were calling each other saying, how are we going to keep our people safe? How are we going to keep the people that we're caring for safe? How are we going to stay safe? So it was incredibly desperate at the time, really, really. There were a couple of weeks there where we were really, really frightened and worried about as to how we were going to get people to have access to the vaccine. Avril turned her anger into action using her community contacts to mobilise. St Barnabas Church is very lucky because we're part of Waltham Forest Citizens. That's a community organising alliance made up of faith, education, trade unions. We're a membership of civic institutions that come together and organise ourselves to bring about change on things that we care about and that we agree upon. We'd work very closely with the NHS Barts Health Trust, our local health authority, and we had good relationships with them. When I recognised that there would be there'd be people in my church that weren't able to register for a vaccine because they didn't have NHS numbers, I was able to explain that very quickly to the Bart's NHS health team. Community engagement lead was Abbas Mirza. He, he's particularly worked very closely with us and different community groups. And when he heard of the plight, he said that wasn't an issue. People who were undocumented could still um, have the vaccine without NHS numbers. There were different clinics that were being opened up. For example, the Jesuits Refugee Centre in Tower Hamlets had a pop-up vaccine clinic that they were running. And he put me in touch with the Jesuits Refugee Centre in Tower Hamlets. And the next day, actually, we were able to coordinate with the teams in Tower Hamlets. 
and organise for 30 members of our church to go and have the vaccine the following week. Those 30 members then came back with another 50 members that wanted to have the vaccine and it just kept word of mouth, people just kept coming back and asking, could we have the vaccine, could we have the vaccine? Avril knew demand went far beyond their congregation, so she took to social media. First time that we advertised the clinic, the pop-up clinic, I knew that we had 100 slots available. There were 50 members of church that we'd already pre-booked. I had put a post out on Twitter just that that afternoon to say we're advertising if there's anybody else in the community need the COVID-19 vaccine, you don't need to bring ID or, or proof of address. We were sold out within 20 minutes upon posting that on Twitter. It was off the charts, so I, I had to put people on a wait list. That wait list then was the next clinic that we booked. And after... I think six vaccine clinics, pop-up clinics that we did together, we were able to deliver over 400 vaccines within two to three months. News of the clinic spread. People arrived from as far away as Scotland, with one woman travelling from Inverness. Took a train in the bus for 18 hours from Inverness in Scotland, the furthest place of Scotland you can imagine. She took that bus just to come and take the vaccine. And she did that because she trusted at the time that we were safe. There was not going to be anyone asking her for her ID, not going to be anyone asking her for any documentation. It was within a community of people that were having the vaccine at the same time. So she trusted us enough to come 18 hours one way to have the vaccine. And she did it twice. She came for the second, for her second dose too. The rollout of the pop-up clinics was a huge logistical effort. There were hundreds of people to move and a new vaccine with its own vulnerabilities. We had some key leaders in our church that we identified as people that would be able to reach out to as many people as possible. So I would be coordinating with those people. And there was two or three of us key leaders that would be charged to get the names and date of birth. That's all the information that we needed, name and a date of birth. But what was key about having booking in these vaccines at the time, because we only had the AstraZeneca vaccine, and the AstraZeneca vaccine, you could only open up the vaccine and have seven shots at a time. So once you opened it, you couldn't close it. So we had to be absolutely sure that the people that were coming to the vaccine clinics were actually going to come. We couldn't have no-shows because that would be wasted doses. So we'd have a vaccine clinic for 100 people, 55 people, 90 people, Every single one of those people did come and took the vaccine. It was a phenomenal effort because we had to keep following up with them on the phones. Are you definitely coming? You're not here yet. You know, the vaccine clinic's going to close in, t- in two hours. Where are you? So the day would start relatively calmly. We'd get to the, to the pop-up vaccine clinic. The XL vaccination team would arrive. They would get set up. I would coordinate with the local authority to make sure that the building was secure and safe because people were lining up out the door. So we had to have security available to steward those lines out the door. And then just a massive effort, a logistical effort to make sure that 100 people could get through within four to five hours and make sure that they were all turning up because, as I said, we couldn't waste any doses because we didn't want to upset the vaccine team too because, like, you know, they were 
these were precious doses at the time. You couldn't, we couldn't waste any of the doses. And, and I'm proud to say we never did. Every single slot was filled. We never wasted a dose. Following the success of the Wolf and Forest pop-up clinics, other boroughs began to organise. The beauty about what we did was, we were one of the first, I believe, but after what we had achieved, there were pop-up vaccination clinics in other areas that were doing mass vaccinations. So there was a, a big one in Tower Hamlets, in Canning Town. So, you know, people were able to go and access their second and third doses in other areas. They didn't need to come and clamour into Waltham Forest to come and have it. So we were able to support really, truly the local Waltham Forest residents at that time. Because in the beginning, we were supporting everyone all over London that were coming for the vaccine. Because there was hardly any vaccine clinics like ours, pop-up clinics like ours that were no ID, no, no questions asked. We were like one of the first ones to really have that kind of um, model. But then it, it grew. We could see that they were happening, thankfully, in other boroughs and in the hospitals themselves. And it wasn't just the vaccine Avril and the team helped with. By using proxy addresses, people began registering with the NHS. We're really proud to say that the legacy of this project has been that those people who came forward for their vaccines are now a lot more comfortable to go and register with the GP. So we've been able to message to them, you know, the GP primary care services are free and that the GPs won't be sharing your information with the Home Office. So we're really proud to say that lots of people have now taken the, the next step from just not just having the vaccine but accessing primary care. What we're exploring with this project is what made people get up and help. Why did some go to so much effort to support others, in some cases risking their own health? For Avril, who works as a care home manager, it is part of her mindset as a frontline worker. I was frontline at work in the care home. We never stayed home. We were at work. We, ne- we could never stay home. And then even more so at church, even though the church was locked, we couldn't allow people to come into the church. We moved everything online. We still kept the community engaging through conference calls, through weekly you know, check-ins. But the push really for me was to make sure that everyone stayed safe. So I felt the impetus to really make sure, and especially because I work in the NHS, you know, you know, health and social care as a care home manager, I felt this obligation that, my gosh, you know, there should be no barrier and we need to have this out for all of our, for all of the public. Yeah, deep care for people that I knew didn't have the voice to come forward and to ask and were too afraid to ask. That's what really pushed me to, to work even harder during the pandemic. While serving the community, Avril also had her own family's needs to consider. Her work was taking her away from home at a time everyone was being told it was too dangerous to leave the house. I felt, thinking back now, really, um, it really was incredibly difficult because the guilt that you have being at work all the time, knowing that you're going to go home and you've got young children and my husband at home, that's why I, in the first 
month and a half of the pandemic, two months actually, we stayed, myself and three other members of staff who had children, we all stayed in the care home. We didn't actually go home. That We've got extra rooms in the home. At the time we had our staff rooms, ensuite rooms in the top part of the care home where we where we lived basically for the first half of the first two months because we were just too afraid to bring home anything back to the house with the family or bring anything from the family back into the care home with, with our residents who were really, really vulnerable as well. I say this, I had not one night's full sleep until all the residents in my care home received their first vaccine. So for about 18 months or 13 months, I hadn't slept. Only because of the that the adrenaline and the, um, yeah, the adrenaline running constantly, knowing that we're in this heightened state of alert, not knowing what, you know, what's going to happen next. First of all, when my residents and staff first received our first dose, that was the first time I was able to take a real first night's sleep. Up until that point, I hadn't slept. I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. For Avril, one thing above all else kept her going. I've said this a lot to friends of mine who are priests and colleagues and people in church, actually, that I don't think I could have survived without my faith. I drew closer to my faith because of the pandemic. And despite the challenges, despite the fear, it didn't overwhelm me. It just only pushed me further to serve more. And it it was that calling of, you know, we're here to love and to serve irrespective of who you were, what you needed, you know, it was just, my faith has been intrinsic to everything that I've been able to achieve in the pandemic, without a doubt. Despite her faith, the mental weight of her work and keeping the community safe took its toll. I mean, my faith kept me grounded, but of course there were moments, there was deep, I didn't go into the depression because I didn't have time for that, but the mental only happened... It's only now we're out of that kind of heightened state of alert. During that time, you know, I couldn't, you didn't even have a moment to think. Like, I didn't even have a moment to sleep. It was after, I think, the, when we first got the vaccines, that's when I first had that first night's sleep. That's when it started to really hit me as to really what we've been through. It was when they had the second, second dose of vaccines that we, I could kind of, you know, relax a little bit because then at least people are completely... You know, the, the numbers that were coming in of those who had had second doses that weren't becoming desperately ill. We saw the numbers of people dying in care homes reducing, you know, rapidly. So that's where, you know, you could feel a lot lighter. But mentally, I think I only started to really take it in, yeah, about a year ago when I really started to reflect on what had happened to all of us during that time. <laughs> other women in this series, Avril noticed who stepped up during the pandemic. Women particularly stepped up in a big, big way. And my husband, I mean, he's a man and he, he stepped up in a massive way to take care of the home. But I think of all the women that I knew in the pandemic, every single one of them Every single woman I knew in the pandemic was working. They were either volunteering, 
sewing face masks. There were the other groups um, that were, yeah, were doing face masks. Some were doing PPE scrubs for NHS workers because we didn't have PPE at the time too. So everybody that, that were isolating at home were doing something. Some were creating like gift parcels for care homes. Some were creating education work packets for kids studying at home. As I said, every woman I know, because I'm chair of the Women's Interfaith Network, every single woman I knew in that in our network, WhatsApp group, was saying, we're doing this today, I'm doing this tomorrow, you know, I'm, I'm going to drop this off to this person. You know, they were all working, volunteering throughout the pandemic. Nobody I knew, personally, was at home. <laughs> Everybody I knew was out there, either, you know, running around, cycling to this to get that, or just coordinating with their groups and making sure that people were, you know, being supported. Today, Avil continues to help members of the St Barnabas congregation access health care. We've recently learned that some people who are undocumented are being charged um, NHS treatment for secondary care. So anything that's first point of call, so A&E and GPs, primary care is all free. But the moment that you go from A&E to a ward, for example or you need more specialist treatment, that was considered secondary care. And we found that people, certainly in our congregation, have been charged £6,000 for, you know, hospital stay, £12,000, and we've been able to help. So we've been able to um, support members who have come up with these bills and write to the NHS Trust to say, listen, could you please consider some extenuating circumstances because they're destitute and we've had some really good feedback they've in some instances suspended the debts some of them they've waived them the work hasn't ended you know the pandemic has happened people have now have access to the vaccines but what else are the needs what other in health inequalities is the community facing and we're just proud to say that we're able to advocate and help where we can taking a little break for the summer returning with our final episode in september so why not subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss that there is also our online exhibition and if you want to see more of avril watch our short film there are links for both in the show notes <laughs>